Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, friends, this morning we are in the last message in our Red Letter Challenge series. I mean, it feels like it has gone in a blink, but uh, if you're new with us, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, so just a really quick introduction. The red letter part of the challenge refers to how some versions of the English Bible print the words of Jesus in red so that they pop off of the page and allow you to see those clearly and focus in on those. And the challenge part of the red letter challenge challenge is hearing from Jesus and taking his words and then actually doing them, putting them in to practice. And so this challenge has been guided for 40 days with a book that gives a daily reading and then a very practical everyday challenge to obediently do what Jesus has said. And so as we come into this last week, how's it going? How's it going for you? I'm just going to give you an encouragement to finish strong. Even if you quit two weeks ago because you got so far behind, finish strong. Even if you quit because the challenges just seemed too overwhelming and you couldn't seem to follow through with them, I'd encourage you to pick it back up. And for the last six days, just do your best. Because that's the reality of following Jesus, isn't it? And this challenge isn't just about 40 days, it's about a lifetime of following Jesus. And throughout your lifetime, there is going to be lots of times where you're going to need to start over. And so why not make this one of those times? In this challenge, as we've been going along, there have been five themes that we've been focusing on. And each of the messages over the last weeks have focused on one of those themes. And so we've had the themes of being, of forgiving, serving giving. And so now this last week we get to going. And about a month ago, my wife Abby and I got away for a couple of nights. We went up to Vermont. We left the kids home and we had never been there before. And so we asked for some recommendations on what we should do, where should we should go. And one of the recommendations we received was to go to this restaurant that we were told has the best French onion soup ever experienced in all of history, hands down, always and forever. And so you get a recommendation like that, and of course, you take it, right? I mean, you don't, you don't pass that by. And so we went, and they brought it out, and of course, it was in the classic ceramic bowls, and it was hot and, you know, layered over top. I mean, let's get honest. The best part of the French onion soup is not the onions, is it? Yeah, it's that cheese on top, right? <laughs> and, and this had the thickest layer of cheese I have ever seen on a French onion soup, so thick that they actually issue kitchen shears so that you can cut through it because your spoon has no chance. And so here we are doing something we've never done before. We're cutting our soup <laughs> so that we can eat it. And I'll tell you, it was not the best French onion soup in the history of the world ever. And yet, it was such a fantastic experience, I would still recommend you go and check it out. And, you know, we do this all the time, don't we? 
We sit around and we tell stories about things that we've experienced in life and we invite other people to share the, th the experiences that we've had. It's such a human thing and it's so natural. And as we move into this week of going, I want to kind of demythologize this idea of going and let you know that going does not require a special set of knowledge or a special set of skills all it really involves is the natural human tendency to share our stories and invite others into the experiences that we've had. And so with that framing, our idea and understanding of going, let's jump into Luke chapter 24 and let's hear from Jesus as he speaks to us this morning. And if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen. And these are the words of Jesus. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gorgeous spring morning, for the opportunity to worship, being blessed by those who have led us in worship this morning. Lord God, in this moment where, you'll, where you send your Holy Spirit to clear out our distractions, to let us hear directly from you, that you would shape us to be people who can go in your name. Amen. So, just to set the scene a little bit, this is Jesus gathered with his disciples just after his resurrection. And they're kind of in awe and shock. They're a little bit of afraid. And Jesus is trying to help them understand what is going on. And what he's telling them is that everything that has been happening was part of the plan. Everything that is written about me, he says, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. It's all part of God's plan. And when he says the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms, that's just another way of saying all of the Jewish scriptures, which is actually the same thing as our Old Testament. They're the same thing. The Jewish scriptures are our Old Testament. And we know that the New Testament is all about Jesus, but Jesus in this moment is affirming that all of the scripture, the Old Testament included, was actually all about him as well. And it helps point us to him in so many different ways. I mean, one, it shows our desperate need for a savior, right? The Ten Commandments, we often think, you know, just a set of rules, but no, it's actually the law of God revealing his character in the world and showing us what is the best way to live for human flourishing. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, we see humans failing to live by that law. We see sin on display, and we see that when we reject God's will and his plan and his purposes for our lives, it leads to chaos, it leads to pain, it leads to ultimately physical and or spiritual death. And so the Old Testament shows us our desperate need for a savior to save us from our sin and our tendency to reject God's way and his purposes. 
The Old Testament also has incredible direct prophecies of what God was going to do through his anointed one, which is what Messiah means, that actually there's over 300 prophecies that directly point to the coming of this Messiah, what this Messiah would do, and that we see fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Prophecies of his birth, his virgin birth in Bethlehem, prophecies of how he would go on, like Isaiah 53, giving an incredible detail, the way he would suffer, be rejected by humanity, by humans, and then would have, God would put on him the sin and the iniquity of us all. Other prophecies speaking of how the Messiah would be the king that they were longing for. This is what John 12, our earlier reading, this is what Palm Sunday was all about. Where John in verse chapter 12, 13 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the people were proclaiming. Well, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118. Verses 14 and 15, when it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. As it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. This was a direct fulfillment of what God had said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See, all scripture points to Jesus because Jesus is the culmination and the climax of God's plan to bring healing, to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation between humanity and God and humans with one another. And Jesus was telling them, I came to fulfill all of it. And he opened their eyes so that they could finally understand clearly what he had done. And it was summarized in these words as Jesus said, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He was letting them know this was part of the plan. I know I died and you thought it was over, but now I'm back. It was all part of the plan, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, all part of the plan. And guess what? You're part of the plan too. And it wasn't just those disciples then, it's us now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of God's plan. You have a role to play. And that role is to go to all nations with this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I mean, now, how, just really think about this for a minute. How crazy is that? I think it's really irresponsible of God to trust us with this. I mean, really. And yet, he gives us this incredible work, this privilege and honor to work with him as a part of his grand plan to bring redemption from all of history to all nations on earth. And it really is a, be a beautiful and unique vision. This vision, God's vision for all nations to be brought to him. In Jesus' day, the other faiths and religions of the world were incredibly ethnocentric. So it was all about their people, their tribe. And even, even as God's plan unfolded in the Old Testament, we see a, a pretty ethnocentric religion and relationship with God, but even that was not God's ultimate plan and purpose. His ultimate plan was for all nations to come to him. You know, and we see it actually at the beginning. When, when in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna, I mean, it's going to be awesome. But I'm going to bless you so that all nations on earth will be blessed through you. 
In other words, this was another promise alluding to and referring to the reality that Jesus would come through the line of Abraham and the blessing of Jesus would go out to all nations so that the message of hope that the creator of all people has intended all people to know his glory and to know his love. And so it, it was the plan in the beginning, but it was also the plan in the end. If you go to the end of the, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, have this incredible picture where it says all nations, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, holding palm branches, by the way, are gathered around the throne of God, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is actually a really unique thing about the Christian faith is that it has an ability to adapt to all cultures without losing the essentials of the faith. See, the gospel lets all people know that though your conscience condemns you and you're unsure how to appease your creator and almighty God, there's nothing else you need to do to save yourself. There's nothing you need to accomplish to have a relationship with God because God has already, in Jesus Christ, done it for you, to save you. That's the core of the gospel message, and it goes into each culture, but it doesn't prescribe a form of government or a set of laws that allow it to set up some Christian court system. It, it, it actually raises up instead the ethics of the kingdom of God, and the only government prescribed is that God is king, everything else figured out. It doesn't prescribe how the exact forms uh, and practices of the faith have to look. Worship, for instance, varies dramatically between cultures. You know, some cultures basically dance through the entire service. And so get ready for our final hymn. You're going to dance. No? Okay. Some cultures have organs and value the incredible reverence for the majesty and holiness and otherness of God. Other cultures have drums and value a more casual come, come as you are because you didn't have to clean yourself up before you come into the presence of God. Jesus already cleaned you. Some cultures have no music at all. See, there's no prescription of the exact forms that the Christian faith has to take. It's just holding on to the core that is the gospel. And so every culture is able to bring the best of its culture and offer it to God as an act of praise, of worship, so that around his throne will be this incredible display of diversity and beauty of all cultures as an expression of thankfulness for the salvation found in Jesus Christ. It's unique. That the Christian faith is good news for all nations, and it doesn't require them to give up their culture. And since hope and salvation are found in Jesus Christ alone, then the nations need to hear about it. Since Jesus is the way to be reconciled with God, to experience his love, then every nation needs to know. But here's the thing, every nation doesn't know. Between my junior and senior years of college, I went to Siberia and Mongolia. And I was there on mission trip working with a group called New Tribes Missions. And their entire focus is on people groups throughout the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. Now that's hard for some of us as Americans to believe that there's people out there. There are tons of people groups, entire peoples, and never heard the name of Jesus, have no idea that he came, that God himself came to earth to save them, to lay his life down for them. And 
it's their incredible focus is so that all the nations would hear this reality. It's part of why a piece of our focus as a church is to the nations of the world. And so we work with villages in partnership in Malawi, Africa. And they're doing incredible development work. Yes, that's true. Trying to lift people out of poverty. But it is, Christ is at the center of this work as it's working particularly closely with the Presbyterian churches in these villages. It's part of why we send teams to Chiapas, Mexico. We have another team going in July and partnering with the church there to equip them well so that they can share the hope of Jesus Christ more effectively in their, their context so that their nation can know the hope in Jesus Christ and then can be disciples who go beyond to all nations. It's, we, we partner with Urban Promise, who has an incredible amount of work happening with the youth in Camden, but they also have work internationally. And in May, they're hosting a leadership summit in Honduras, where we actually support a missionary there, Chris Schneff. Sorry. And we've been, we've been invited to send a team to be a part of this leadership summit to continue to also equip these leaders in Honduras and Central America who are going to go to more effectively share the hope of Jesus Christ, the salvation in his name in their nations, so that all nations can know. And maybe you're called to go to the nations. Maybe you've felt the tug before. Maybe you, you, God has put a passion in your heart for a particular country, a particular people, because he has a vision for all nations, and you are part of the plan. And you might be going, yeah, but I'm too old to go. Then perhaps the way you're going to go is on your knees, desperately praying to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest to go where the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been heard before. And so we pray, and we go because he left it to us to go. And if we don't go, how will the nations hear about Jesus? I mean, Paul was so passionate about this idea in Romans 10. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he goes on to ask the questions, how will they call on his name if they have not believed? How will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if someone does not go and speak and preach to them? I mean, if we don't go and we don't speak, they're never going to hear. We are the plan. You're the plan. So where might God be calling you to go? Malawi? Honduras? To another people or place? Man, let's talk if you've got a burden and a passion. And some, I understand, you might get irked you know, with all the focus on the nations, because you look at our own nation, you go, man, it seems to be burning to the ground. And you're not wrong. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't overlook the local nation either. He said it this way. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to send you to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Beginning right where they were. Beginning locally. Beginning in their backyard. Beginning with their friends, their family, their neighbors, their business colleagues. He was saying, hey, yeah, yeah, I know you might be excited to get to the nations, but guess what? You live in the nations. You're in one of them. 
And you're in this local place. And so you may not be called to go internationally, but God has put a claim on your life if you're a follower of Jesus to absolutely go to your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, schoolmates, to be on a soccer field and realize it's not just there to enjoy you know, the possibilities that your kid is going to someday go pro, but to actually be the presence of Jesus, to share the hope that you'd have. You're the plan. To begin right where you are, but to go with intent to speak, to preach, as he said, the repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And this repentance is this idea in the scripture that comes over and over again of turning away. Turning away from things and ways of life that aren't working. Do you have any ways of life that aren't working? This idea of repentance is to turn away from the sin, from the despair, from the anxiety, from all these ways of life that lead ultimately to to what is death. And to turn away from that, to turn toward him to new life in Jesus. Turn towards him for forgiveness. No longer having to earn your way out of death into life, but to find in him new life offered as a free gift, not because you're perfect, not because you even earned it or are worthy of it, because he loves you. And isn't this a message of good news? They hate life, because life isn't working for most people. Did you know that? Even the ones that have a shiny, happy face on a lot of the time, it's not really working. And they need a message that is truly good news. And you're the plan to bring that good news into their life. And so we go. But I know when we start thinking about this, you're like, okay, but what do I do? We all get worried because we're not sure what to do. And Jesus answers the the question very clearly. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And obviously he was speaking directly to his disciples who had been there as witnesses. They saw Jesus' miracles. They heard Jesus' teaching. They saw his crucifixion. They're experiencing him in his bodily resurrection right there in his presence. So what are we supposed to do? Be witnesses. What do witnesses do? You start thinking about witnesses. What do they do? All witnesses do is share what they have seen and experienced. It's simple. And it's natural. And you do it all the time. You witness to all sorts of different things. And so when we start thinking about being witnesses of Jesus Christ, it's to witness, it's to share your story. How has Jesus intersected and impacted your life? I mean, you think about a courtroom. The witnesses aren't the ones who have to try to convince anybody of anything. Their job is to testify to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? to lay it out there. But, but we get so twisted up because we're concerned that we have to be the ones to convince. And so it leads, instead of going, we find ourselves afraid, not going because we're afraid of what other people are going to think of us. They're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm a Bible thumper or a Jesus freak. They're going to just think I'm weird. And here's, here's my word for you. Yup. Isn't that helpful? I'm glad I could be a helper this morning. (laughs) Here's the thing. Normal isn't working. Normal is leading to pain and chaos and death. Let's be weird. Right? 
Let's be weird and proclaim that there is another way to live, that there is a God who loves them so much that he would enter into human life, would suffer and die in their place so that they could have new life in him. But grace doesn't make sense because it's offensive to my desire to do it my way, on my terms, my merit, to feel great about myself. And so it's going to be off-putting to some. And Jesus doesn't pull the punches. He says, yeah, some are going to turn on you, but here's the thing. It's not about you. Let me, it's not about me. But I make, I make all sorts of stuff about me that's not about me. We do it all the time as humans. And Jesus is saying, when they turn on you, it's re- the reality is they're turning on me, and unfortunately, they're also turning away from their own future and life in him. And, and we don't go because we don't, we don't have all the answers. We're like, what if they ask a question that I don't know what to do with and, I, and then I won't know what, what to say? And, and here's the thing. I don't know is a perfectly good answer. So I know it's really hard for some of us men to say. Um, and, oh, and ladies. I don't know is a perfectly good answer, but it demands some humility on our part to be willing to acknowledge that, you know what, I don't know. And I don't know is, it, is a much more authentic answer in an, a loving and genuine relationship with somebody than, well, you know, it's kind of like, <clears throat> well, see, I got to go. And so how about I don't know, or even better, how about I don't know, but I'd love to look into it and then get back to you. And then it begins a conversation that can be ongoing about Jesus. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know how to do this. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know how to do it. It's really, it is as simple as being a witness. What, what have you seen? What have you experienced of Jesus in your life? What was life like before Jesus showed up? For me, my life was a bit of a mess. I had incredible trust issues from the, from the broken home that I came out of. And as a result of that, I had decided somewhere within my heart and soul to trade genuine love and acceptance for respect and achievement. That was going to be how I would cope and how I would navigate the world. And so then I realized after a while my achievements weren't getting me what I wanted. And so my my identity I found on shaky ground and I had this incredible amount of insecurity. And so I started going to look for where could I find the, the thing that I was looking for? Where could I find that genuine love? And I went looking in all sorts of wrong places. And I woke up one afternoon realizing it's not working. And I'm flushing my life down the toilet and this is a a way of life that leads to death. I didn't have all those words around it, but that was the experience in the moment of desperation. And so God graciously led me into a Christian fraternity and I was like, yeah, sure, I'm Christian. I grew up going to church, but I had no idea what it meant to actually repent, to turn away from these ways of life that weren't working and to put my trust, oh yeah, I have trust problems, to put my trust genuinely in Jesus as the source of my worth, my value, my identity, my hope, as the foundation for my life. But man, I remember when the light, his light flooded into my darkness and his love filled me and it led me into a place where I could begin to have trusting relationships, not just with him, but with other people. I came to a place where I didn't need other people to approve of me, to have their respect in order to be secure, to be okay with myself. I began to change everything from the inside out. How did, what was your life like before Jesus? How did he show up in your life? And what has he done since then? It's that simple. 
As a witness, you tell what you've experienced and you've seen. Oh, but I don't want to impose on anyone. I didn't say anything about imposing. I said doing that natural thing that is sharing a story of what's changed your life. And it's natural. Well, but I don't want to pressure them. Like, I don't want to pressure them to believe. Remember, the witnesses don't convince anyone. There's others in the courtroom that have to convince. The, the, the legal advocates, the attorneys, they're the ones that have to do the convincing, right? Well, here's the amazing thing. In John chapter 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate, the legal counselor. He's going to do the convincing. And in Luke, what we just read, Jesus says, hey, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because then when you go out to be my witnesses, you can just do the witnessing, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to do the convincing. And what freedom. We have this power to witness. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as I come, come to the end, just share this with you, was one of those powerful preachers, maybe ever, but certainly in the mid-1800s. He came from rural England, and as a teenager, he began preaching. And after 18 months of preaching in this kind of rural English church, his reputation had grown, and he was invited to preach in a large church in London. And he came, and he preached so powerfully that day that he was invited to stay and preach, and he never left London after that. And he had this incredible gift for, for sharing the gospel, for helping people understand, hey, your life isn't working. Repent, turn away from this, and turn toward Jesus. And thousands of people will come. And they couldn't find halls big enough or churches big enough, so they started moving into concert venues. And he would preach to thousands of people at a time, and they would, they would turn their lives to Jesus. And I hold up an example like this, and, and you probably say, wow, that's cool, and that's awe-inspiring, but man, I couldn't do that. I feel so inadequate, I don't have those gifts. So let me take you back to a time when Spurgeon was only 15. And in his own words, he says, I was years and years on the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy, I was desponding, I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. And he set out to try to figure out, is there any relief? Is there any other way? And so he decided he'd go to all these different churches. And one day he was on his way to try to find a church, but this snowstorm came in, and instead he was diverted down this side street, and he ended, ended up at a primitive Methodist chapel. He goes inside to get out of the cold, and there's like 12 to 15 people in the room. And the minister didn't even show up that day. So here they are in the middle of worship, the time for the message comes, and they're just all kind of sitting there. And this thin-looking guy who he thinks was the shoemaker in town or a tailor stood up and he read this text, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. In that moment, everything changed for Spurgeon. In that moment. And he goes on in his own autobiography, he said, hey, this, he had not much to say, thank God. For that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, now look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. One who is almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. And many of ye are looking to yourselves 
But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. And then he finally, realizing after about 10 minutes, he has nothing else to say other than keep repeating the word look. He looks out and he sees Spurgeon and he says, young man, you look very miserable. Well said. Spurgeon, I I did look miserable, but I hadn't been accustomed to anyone making remarks from the pulpit about my appearance. But the preacher went on. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And he kept shouting at the top of his lungs, look, 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 and live. And Spurgeon looked. And in that moment, his heart was changed and he saw what a Savior Christ was. Spurgeon would go on to say that he didn't even know the man's name. He never would know the man's name. This simple man, this simple man who didn't come prepared, he didn't come with rhetorical genius, he didn't come with with an incredible depth of theological knowledge, but a simple man who came with a simple message to look to Jesus and be saved. Witnessing isn't for experts. It's not for those who have knowledge and expertise. It's as natural as sharing the newest restaurant that has changed your life, or when you finally found the brand of jeans that fit you perfectly, or you met a spouse or a person that you were excited to introduce everybody in your life to, it's just as natural as that. And if it's not that natural, then maybe the invitation for you this morning is to repent is to repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to turn away from the ways of life that are not working, that are ultimately leading to death, to receive from Jesus Christ a new life in him that changes everything. And then you'll have a story to tell. And it'll be natural. And so as we go from here in this week of going and well beyond, share your stories of what Jesus has done because there is a world desperate and dying for us to go. And you're the plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a little overwhelmed by the plan. We're overwhelmed by your calling on our lives. We're overwhelmed by by feeling like we have to go in our own strength and power. And so, Lord, in this moment, may you help us experience and know and receive and believe the Holy Spirit profoundly as the one who will do the convincing. May we instead simply give witness to what you have done in our lives and may you deepen our understanding. May you deepen our understanding of your forgiveness of sin, of reconciliation in you and your love for us that we could share a story. And Lord, may you soften the hearts of those in our lives who need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 